we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Krikori, an executive director of the Center. And this week's podcast is going to be an interview that we taped a couple of weeks ago that's on our website in video form, but we thought we would offer it as a podcast as well. And it's a discussion I had with Senator Tom Cotton, Republican of Arkansas, on the issue of Chinese foreign students and foreign students in general and the national security implications of that. The senator has been a leader on this issue in highlighting it, and he is quite knowledgeable about it, understands the issues, is familiar with them. He's no empty suit. He really knows what he's talking about. And it was a very interesting discussion. And we're going to play that for you. And then afterwards, I'm going to have a few words about something that we've been seeing in the news this week. You've just submitted a letter recently to the administration about this issue. Why don't we start with that or whatever sort of aspect of it you wanted to talk about? uh, Thank you, Mark, for having me. And thanks especially to the Center for Immigration Studies. CIS has been doing outstanding work on the immigration issue, which is very broad and complex for many years. And it informs my work and my age work closely with you and so many people on your team. And I know it's very helpful to educate all the members of the Senate and the Congress who come to Washington, oftentimes not that knowledgeable about the immigration issue because it's mostly a federal issue. You know, you get new members of Congress in town, as we have this week. And they oftentimes have served in a state legislature or a county commission. So they understand some of the basics of government that happens at every level. You know, they understand tax policy, for instance, or they understand a lot about healthcare policy often because Medicaid is a joint state federal program. But immigration, like national security, is one of those issues that they just don't hear much about at the state level. So oftentimes they're misinformed, usually by organizations representing businesses that want to exploit our immigration system for cheap labor. CIS does a great job of helping inform and educate them on the realities of of immigration. And and I do want to talk today about uh, intersection of immigration and national security that often gets overlooked, which is the threat from China. As Mark said, I uh, wrote a letter to the Biden administration earlier this week that was, again, informed by some of the work CIS had done about the way two Chinese companies, ByteDance and its more well-known subsidiary TikTok, have been potentially abusing the H-1B visa to bring Chinese nationals into America to work at those companies' so-called American headquarters, where data is supposed to be protected from the Chinese communist mainland, but I have strong suspicions that it is actually still accessible, which is a grave threat to American security and privacy, not just today, but for decades into the future. So just one example of how CIS's work helps me and so many others in the Congress, but also one example of, like I said, this unusual nexus that not many Americans think about. When they think about China and national security, they might think about, say, China's hypersonic missiles. Or maybe they think about you know, how China has been stealing our jobs and our manufacturing base and our intellectual property for decades. Those are very important issues as well. 
when they think about immigration and national security, traditionally one might think about our wide open southern border and the fact that we have cartel members and gang members flooding our communities with fentanyl, killing more than 100,000 Americans a year, or the dozens of illegal aliens on the terror watch lists that have crossed our border over the last year. Those are all really, really vital issues as well. But there is this nexus between China and our legal immigration system that China uses to exploit America's prosperity and put at risk our security and also influence our politics. I'll just give you one, one other example of this. In my new book, Only the Strong, I write at some length about what I call the China lobby, which is the pervasive influence of China in our society. A lot of examples of it. Some of them don't involve immigration. Some of them are very well known, like when the Houston Rockets general manager merely retweeted. He didn't even say it in his own words. He merely retweeted a comment in favor and support of Hong Kong democracy protesters. The League and LeBron James came down on them like a ton of bricks. Why? Because China is their single biggest overseas market. LeBron James also wants his movies to be aired in Chinese theaters. But also it has influenced the immigration system as well. For instance, a lot of universities, even a lot of private boarding schools at the secondary school level, depend heavily on full freight tuition paying Chinese nationals. I mean, I have a friend who went to a boarding school 25 years ago and you know, it's in the Midwest. Typically, it's a lot of farm kids, a lot of hockey players. Now, it's more than half Chinese nationals, not Chinese Americans, but Chinese nationals who are on a student visa to come here. Just think about the influence that that creates, say, for the congressman from that district. You have the headmaster of that school. You have its board of directors who are probably influential, notable people in their community. You have the city and county government because they generate so much economic activity for that community. They're all coming to Washington. They're going to meet with that congressman. They're going to urge him not, not to, say, relax student visa rules, not something that's in their actual core interest. They're going to ac ask him to tone it down on Taiwan, to tone it down on the genocide against religious and ethnic minorities in northwest China. They're going to do that because they're getting influence and pressure from Chinese communists. That's why I say when, it, when I mean it's pervasive. When you have so much Chinese leverage in our society to include in our immigration system, we're giving Chinese communists the opportunity to influence our policy in ways that's not even directly related to their own material and immediate interests. And, and like I said, CIS has done great work to help expose the risk that China poses using and exploiting our legal immigration system. Now, that's a fascinating point about China, like you said, using it, but in a sense, sort of as an influence operation. But also there's sort of more direct issues. I mean, the about one third, more than one third of all foreign students in the United States are Chinese nationals. Again, not immigrants who are green card holders or citizens who happen to have Chinese background, but actual people who are on student visas. And that itself, especially at the graduate school and researcher level, has direct implications for security, either because of industrial espionage or actual political espionage. I mean, so what is the vulnerability yeah, there? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think most Americans envision, you know, people on student visas as kind of scrappy, up by the bootlaces success stories, young kids from countries like China or Nigeria or Egypt, or Pakistan, who struggled, 
who had parents who cared for them, who helped them get an education despite the troubled circumstances of, of their countries or, or maybe their regions in those countries, and finally got that golden ticket to come to America and learn and become an American citizen one day and build a better life here for themselves and be a great contributing vibrant member of our community. There are a lot of those stories. Let's not kid ourselves. China is a totalitarian communist country. And if you get one of those golden tickets from China, the odds that you or more likely your parents or your grandparents are affiliated with and supportive of the Chinese Communist Party or the People's Liberation Army is pretty high. And there's a reason why so many Chinese nationals come here to study at premier research universities, not small liberal arts colleges, and why they tend to go into advanced scientific fields, especially, as Mark said, at the graduate and the postgraduate level. That's because they're here on a mission. They're here to exploit wide gaps in security at our universities, to target programs and departments that have contracts with the Department of Defense, Department of Homeland Security, our intelligence agencies, to steal that technology, to recruit other assets on those faculties to commit similar kinds of espionage. That's why I have legislation that, you know, on one hand would catalog all Chinese companies that are owned by or supported or sponsored by the Chinese Communist Party or the People's Liberation Army to try to restrict visas given to persons affiliated with those organizations, or that would simply end the practice of giving Chinese nationals visas, student visas, to study at the graduate and the postgraduate level in the STEM fields. Undergraduate levels is not as dangerous in, in this espionage regard. It still poses the risk if there are too many visas given out, especially in concentrated fashions at specific universities of the Chinese influence that I mentioned earlier. But I mean, we should have Chinese nationals coming here to study things like Western philosophy and the Federalist Papers and Shakespeare, not coming here to study quantum computing at Caltech. It just makes no sense to be training China's next generation of cutting edge engineers or computer programmers or weapons developers at our own universities and to put at risk the technology we've developed at those universities, often in conjunction with the federal government. And the other effect of that is that the capacity to do that training, the number of professors, the lab time and all that is not infinite. And so if we're importing people who are going to be using some of that capacity, those are Americans we're not training. Look, we have a lot of great universities and colleges, but at the end of the day, there is a total limit on the number of seats in those schools. There's a smaller limit on the number of seats in fields like engineering or mathematics or computer science. And as you say, Mark, that if we have 300,000 Chinese nationals here, that's 300,000 seats that otherwise might not be going to Americans who could get that training, who could go on to do those jobs. Right. Now, the agency within Homeland Security that oversees this whole foreign student program is in ICE. And that was really a basically a legacy of 9-11 because there was this concern, you know, you'd have Iranian students, they may sign up to study the Federalist Papers. And then miraculously in the second semester of freshman year, they have this road to Damascus moment. And they realize, you know, they really wanted to study nuclear engineering instead. The whole point was to have an agency, it's within ICE, that sort of oversees what's going on. It's a student exchange visitor program, SEVP, and it doesn't seem to be doing a very good job of that. I mean, my sense is that ICE doesn't give that high priority. Is that something that maybe a new Congress, 
even if you all are still in the minority next year, in the House, the Republicans will be in the majority, need to focus more attention on sort of lighting a fire under that agency so they actually take their responsibility seriously. I think, obviously, the example you gave is important as well. And again, I don't want to minimize the national security threats we face you know, at our southern border or you know, through rogue nations like Iran or Syria engaged in these exchange programs. But it is specifically China that has the resources and the scale and the driven motivation to explore our immigration system that really needs to be refocused on. And the student visa education program needs to focus more specifically on China. Now, that's not just an issue with ICE or DHS. It's really an issue all across our government. I mean, for 30 years, bureaucrats in Washington and politicians, frankly, in both parties viewed China as a partner. They thought that you know, their peaceful rise was going to help America. I mean, Joe Biden said this repeatedly, not only as president or presidential candidate, but as vice president, as a senator for decades. It's time to stop thinking that way. You know, Joe Biden keeps insisting that we're not in a Cold War with China. And I know most Americans would prefer we not be, and no, certainly no one wants a Cold War with China, just like we didn't want one with Russia. But if another country is already waging a Cold War against you, your choice is not whether you're in it or, or not in it. Your choice is whether you win it or lose it. And too often we've been losing it. We really need to reorient our entire bureaucracy towards the threat that China poses, because there's not a single department or agency in our government that doesn't have Chinese influence or Chinese threats in some ways touching it to include our immigration agencies. So one more thing on the foreign student issue. We have no limits on the number of foreign students, just in general, whether from China or anywhere else. And even at the university level, there's no limit on the percentage of the student body that are foreign students. And so in a sense, we have kind of delegated our access to the United States to these thousands of institutions, public and private, which have all of their own different motivations. Is there kind of a way of re-looking, rethinking the whole concept of taking in foreign students? Yeah, I think we need to do so. Like I said, you know, I've got legislation that would just cut it off at the graduate and postgraduate level. I think we also need to assess, again, the, the total number of foreign students we allow in and also how we make those decisions. I mean, in some cases, nonprofits, which include universities or research foundations affiliated with them, are totally exempt from any caps that even are in place in some programs in our immigration system. I mean, this gets back to the broader question about how many immigrants we take in. You know, as Mark knows, and CIS has been helpful on, I, I have legislation that would alter the way we conduct our entire legal immigration system and also lower the total number uh, of green cards we're giving out each year. But it's something that we should consider for our students as well. Because again, there is a finite number of seats at our universities in America, and we should first and foremost be focused on American students getting the training they need to succeed in our economy. You know, you, you've always heard from, from big tech in Silicon Valley how there's not enough tech workers and they've got to have all these foreign workers come in on H-1B visas. I mean, I think the last couple of weeks gives a lot of that since every company in Silicon Valley is laying off a third of its workforce. So must not be in that much demand. Why would we want to continue to give away seats in our universities just like we continue to give away, you know, H-1B visas for supposedly high-skilled workers, which are, they have important skills that require a college degree, but there are things that, that Americans could easily do. I mean, they're not like making the next quantum computer. You know, they're setting up information systems at offices and that kind of thing. Again, you've got to have high training, good training to do that, but it's training that Americans could learn to do, especially young Americans who are going to colleges. And there's this blurry area between foreign students and H-1Bs, which you referred to, which is the Optional Practical Training Program, OPT, where 
former students. I mean, they're basically people on student visas. I mean, in a sense, kind of masquerading as students, but really it's turned into a work visa program. And this is something that usually comes into discussion regarding Indians using the H-1B program because people from India are the biggest users of it. And I think it's pretty clear that's a kind of threat, national security, but India itself is not using this in the way that China is. But there's a lot of Chinese students using this OPT program. Yeah. Is this something Congress should visit? Because it's not authorized by statute. It's something they just call, made calling up. OPT a blurry area is kind OPT. Okay, well. I would call it a fraud. Yes. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, it's not authorized by law. It was created towards the end of the Bush administration, which made had many missteps on immigration policy, especially legal immigration policy. Um, and it's allowing so-called students who are graduated and done with their education to go out and enter the workforce without otherwise valid legal status. And again, taking away jobs that Americans would be able to do. I think we're up to well over 100,000 foreign nationals now in OPT status. And in certain fields, they can do it for you know, three years. And again, these are not, it's not like something where you have practical training. It's not like internship and residency, which is still inherently part of the medical training. I mean, it's like you get your degree in information management systems and you go work for some company usually at wages lower than what Americans would make because you're in this restricted status. So I think the OPT program is, in essence, it's a fraud. It was, again, created at the end of the Bush administration because employers were complaining that they were having to pay American workers too much and they couldn't find American workers. And again, like just look in the news in the last two weeks, there must, must be plenty of workers out there looking for jobs because every tech company in America is laying off a third of its workforce. And just to sort of the... Uh kind of the whipped cream on top of that issue is that OPT is actually subsidized because the employers don't have to pay social security taxes on their workers. And so it's about an 8% discount that taxpayers are paying to hire foreign, quote, students masquerading as workers. So it's really, it's appalling. Um, the H-1B, the other thing on H-1B, your recent letter was about TikTok using H-1Bs, but there was also an earlier incident regarding Microsoft and Bing and Tankman. This was um, the anniversary of the Tiananmen massacre. I think it was two years ago or whatever it was where you type in Tankman and Bing and no, nothing shows up. I mean, and so these, it's not clear were there H-1Bs doing that or not? And so that's something that seems to me Congress needs to get it, it's also, it's, Again, it's just an example of the pervasive Chinese influence you have in America. You know, it's like a Airlines and hotels, uh, you know, are not allowed to list Taiwan in their drop-down menus, even though Americans can get fly on an American airplane, American airline to Taiwan, and stay in an American hotel chain in Taiwan. Or, just, or like our bureaucrats, you listen to bureaucrats at the State Department; they always refer to the Taiwans, and never <laughs> refer to the Taiwanese, because saying Taiwanese would imply that there is a people, a nationality, which implies there is a nation uh, known as Taiwan. So it's always the Taiwans. Uh, again, it's just an example of the crazy. Crazy degree of influence that China has infiltrated in our society. Now, what specifically is the vulnerability, for instance, with regard to TikTok? What kind of information are we worried about the Chinese Communist Party getting or using from that kind of example? Well, first off, TikTok is terrible for well, America, yeah, America's youth. I understand. Um, <laughs> I look around the audience and I, I see a lot of, a lot of youngsters who are probably using TikTok two hours every night. There's a reason why in China you can't use TikTok for four hours a night. Like they limit the amount of time that people can be on TikTok. They also mostly 
filter it out so it's good wholesome content uh, about respecting your elders and eating your vegetables and studying hard. No wonder they don't want to watch it. Yeah. So so but the back office risks of TikTok, not the videos you see and the kind of corrosive effect it has on the minds of America's youth is the data that it collects. And that data is there and it's permanent and it's can be used against our kids as they grow up and they get older. And not just kids obviously. I mean Grownups use it too. I mean, I think increasingly people in Washington are using it, trying to reach voters and communicate. That means they're being exposed as well. If you look at the fine print uh, of TikTok's terms and conditions, if you look under the hood of its application, it exposes all of your personal data, perhaps all the data you have on your device to collection and exploitation. And again, it's not like, you know, if your 15-year-old daughter is you know, watching videos uh, of drum major routines, that's going to put her at risk. But if it accesses every other bit of information on her phone, then that can put her at risk. And it puts her at risk for the rest of her life. I mean, this data doesn't just disappear. It's collected in troves. By so the if like Chinese 10 economy. years, 15 years in the future, she's in a sensitive position course, or something absolutely. like that, that's the interesting. That's absolutely. Interesting. So I, I, let me just yeah, sure. be clear. If you have TikTok on your device, you should delete it from your device. And even better, you should probably go out and buy a new device <laughs> and not download TikTok on it. Wow, it's that serious. This would be my advice. Under the Trump administration, Attorney General Sessions started something called China Initiative to address some of these issues. The Biden administration got rid of it, discontinued it. Is that something that you know we should restart, or what are the what are the problems with that? Yeah, absolutely. Dangers? It was a mistake by the Biden administration. They've never quite explained why they stopped the China Initiative inside of the Department of Justice. I think the Likely explanation is twofold, maybe threefold. First, as with anything in the Biden administration, it was created in the Trump administration, so they wanted to stop it. Right. Second, I, I think that to them, it, it had undertones of racism and xenophobia and nativism. You know, just like in, in February of 2020, when I suggested the coronavirus didn't originate in a food market, it probably came from a lab down the street where they were researching bat-based coronaviruses. You were mocked for that, but now apparently it's conventional wisdom. Oh, yeah. I mean, most Americans with any common sense who looked at the evidence would say, like, obviously it came from those labs. And I wasn't just mocked. I was called a racist and a nativist and a xenophobia by Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. So I think that's a second reason. A third reason is I suspect that, you know, Chinese diplomats leaned on the Secretary of State and the Attorney General not to be so zealous in trying to pursue Chinese espionage and Chinese threats. And as they often do, the Biden administration caved to that. But the threat hasn't changed. You know, Chris Ray has said that the lion's share of counterintelligence cases in this country relate to Chinese espionage, whether it's traditional espionage by you know, spies here in Washington running out of the Chinese embassy or non-traditional espionage of the sorts we've been discussing of Sons of PLA researchers who are at advanced research institutions just happen, happen to sign up for the right programs and then spiriting away the information when they can. You know, in Arkansas, we had a university professor at University of Arkansas who was convicted of crimes related to having Chinese patents, just like the head of the Harvard Biochemistry Department. Probably, you know, just there was a conviction and sentencing just yesterday in one of these cases. So the threat is not going to go away. It's still there. And you know, there's some, I think there's some enterprising and patriotic you know, line attorneys in the U.S. attorney's offices across the country and FBI agents in the field offices across the country who are still pursuing this. But I worry that they don't have the kind of robust support they have from the main 
justice here in Washington. In talking about whether they're foreign students, foreign workers, whatever it is from China, I think people, they're assuming that those people are in a similar situation to someone coming from, say, India or Japan or England, when in fact, their family members at home, in a sense, are kind of hostages. So that even if somebody comes here as a student from China or a foreign worker or what have you, even if they really don't like the CCP very much or aren't really connected to the PLA, they don't really have any choice if those institutions want to apply pressure to them. Isn't that one of the real dangers here? Yeah, it's, it's a severe danger. Um, and as you say, especially if you're from a friendly nation, a democratic nation like the United Kingdom or, or Italy or Japan or Brazil, you're not going to face that kind of coercion that threats could happen to your family back home. In China, that is a tool of statecraft. And I think it's important, you know, we, we've made the distinction here a few times between Chinese Americans Chinese nationals who've naturalized here, had parents or grandparents or great-grandparents going back decades who've naturalized here and are fellow citizens, and Chinese nationals, subjects of the People's Republic of China who are here on some kind of immigration status. We make that distinction. It's important to understand that Xi Jinping and Chinese communists don't make that distinction. So this is a risk even for Chinese Americans, even for those people who have immigrated here and become citizens, as long as they have family back in mainland China. Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party views those American citizens as theirs. Interesting. Um, and that risk is even doubly true when you're talking about Chinese nationals who are here on some kind of immigration status. That's why you see on, on university campuses, in many cases, the Confucius Institutes or whatever they're, they're calling themselves now become, in effect, enforcers for the Chinese Communist Party. They're collecting on fellow Chinese nationals or, in many cases, Chinese Americans who still have families back in mainland China if they're protesting, for instance, about Tibet or protesting about the Uyghur people who are subject to genocide in northwest China. If they're protesting about Hong Kong, it's a pervasive threat. That's just probably the most public aspect of it. But it's also true, again, if you yourself, as a young Chinese national, would simply like to get a world-class education at one of our great institutions, and don't really want to spy for the Communist Party, that you're, you're subject to a lot of pressure and coercion because your family is still back in the mainland. Right, right. There's another immigration issue that China figures into. It's not really so much a security issue, but it is important. And this is the recalcitrant countries is kind of the shorthand term for it. Because a lot of countries don't want to take back their own citizens if they've committed a crime and a deportable, and in a sense, you could sort of understand it as sort of a hot potato. It's like, well, it's, these people are your problem now. China's one of the worst offenders in this regard. And what is it? I mean, what can we do more to actually apply pressure? Yeah. So in an insane Supreme Court decision a couple of decades ago says that if, if we have an illegal alien in our country, they've been ruled deportable under our laws, but their home country won't take them back. And we're just stuck with them. And after about six months, we have to release them into the country, even though the law has already adjudicated them as not lawfully present. This is oftentimes a bigger problem under Democratic administration. Sometimes it gets better under Republican administration, as it did under the last one. The Trump administration was pretty good about using diplomacy and more necessary pressure to force countries like, say, Sierra Leone to take back more of its foreign nationals. China, obviously, is a different case. They've got a lot more leverage than smaller countries. But the Trump administration was successful somewhat there too. But the Biden administration has, again, totally abandoned that, I think, through a combination of opposition to anything Trump did and undertones of racism and nativism and xenophobia 
and just kowtowing to Chinese communists. There are things we can do to put pressure on them. I'd say suggest that most of what we should do is probably targeted towards Chinese Communist Party officials uh, and like the immigration system. denying visas to their families, that sort of thing? Yeah, denying visas to their families, denying student, yeah, student visas to their families. You know, a lot of them use the so-called I-reporter visa to send in what are basically their propagandists. I mean, this is a specific problem, so I, I wouldn't have a shotgun blast approach to it. I'd have a targeted specific approach to it, which I, I think we can use the leverage we have in our immigration system to say, if you want to get any of these visas that uh, are not dangerous to our national interests, then you're going to take back the Chinese nationals that are in this country that we have found removable. Interesting. You mentioned this I visa. This is supposed to be for reporters, right? Like, in other words, somebody from Reuters or the BBC or whatever who's stationed here would have something like this. How are the Chinese using that? Because Chinese media is obviously not like the BBC, well, actually, maybe it is more like the BBC than you'd like, but it's not there. It's not a free media. It's an yeah. organ of the government. So if you, if you think about it, if a reporter inherently doesn't need a, a long term or recurring visa, you know, I'm, I'm sure the Chinese communists are granting our reporters free and open access to Wuhan to research what happened there. <laughs> and, in, and the Uyghur three, camps, Three years too. ago, or the Uyghur <laughs> camps as well. But typically you're coming in or you like going to report on the Olympics or, you know, coming here to report, like if Xi Jinping were to come for a summit in two years, coming here to report on something like that. So they're <laughs> supposed to be more, they're short term, they're, they're more targeted. The Chinese Communist Party is trying to use these, though, to get reporters to really state-owned propaganda outfits into America to influence the tone of coverage. Sometimes, rather than using those visas because they are shorter term and more focused, they're trying to evade them by, say, getting H-1B visas for what are really, in effect, propagandists by calling them you know, social media specialists. Well, it's a job Americans like won't do. So, yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know if you dealt with this in your book, Only the Strong, but there is sort of a broader issue, and you've alluded to it a number of times. I don't think we are envisioning dealing with the People's Republic of China in a different way than we deal with other countries. It was, a, In a sense, it was a lot clearer when we were dealing with the Soviet Union. Everybody sort of got that there was a threat from the Soviet Union. There seems let's to be, not a, be Let's not. Okay, okay. Well, some people passed the rose-colored yeah, yeah. glasses. Okay, a lot okay. of Democrats like Joe Biden and John Kerry didn't quite didn't. get it. That's a good point. <laughs> That's a good point. But I mean, I think, let's say it was more broadly understood that the Soviet Union, what kind of threat it was. There seems to not be that same, or only maybe now people are getting that China's different. That whether it's reporters, whether it's foreign students, whatever it is, it's not the same as bringing people from other countries. So during the Cold War with Soviet Russia, it is true that normal Americans of pretty much all stripes understood that Soviet Russia was our enemy and that they were a genuine threat. I don't think you have that same widespread perception about China, even though China is deeply unpopular. That was, they were deeply unpopular with the American people before the coronavirus pandemic as well. There's lots of opinion polling that suggests that. I don't think that as many Americans view them as an enemy, though, and that's in large part, again, because our political class for 30 years kind of worked together to cast them as a partner, that China's peaceful rise was going to somehow be beneficial for American workers and American communities and families, and that's simply not been the case. It, it shouldn't have been perceived that way at the time. There are plenty of people who oppose, for instance, the annual certification of most favored nation status for China. Bill Clinton used this as a campaign issue in 1992. There are some people who oppose strongly the granting of permanent most favored nation status and accepting China's entry in the World Trade Organization, which really set off in 2000, 2001, the so-called China shock that accelerated the outsourcing of 
wholesale industries to China. But again, this was celebrated, defended, promoted by our political class, even though it, it was widely known. I mean, it's not people can we have translators. You don't have to speak Mandarin. I mean, people knew that Deng Xiaoping used to talk about hiding your strength and biding your time. Communist nation says we're going to hide our strength and bide our time. You might want to take note of that and not do anything to give them more strength, which is what we did. We basically fueled the rise of China. And now it's a threat unlike, I'd say, anything our nation has ever faced. Much different, in my opinion, more dangerous than the Soviet-Russian threat because Soviet Russia was not so deeply entangled with America's economy. You know, we had largely two separate trading blocks in the world. There was some, some trade between our nation, but very, very little. And economically, they were much more anemic. Economically, they were always much smaller than America. Or when you look at the the free world and the Warsaw Pact block and the Cold War combined, the economies are just nothing like each other, whereas China's economy is now almost the size of our own economy. And uh, again, the influence we have, we see here in America is pervasive across the world as well. You know, Olaf Scholz, the German chancellor, just traveled to China with you know, kind of their equivalent of, you know, the Chamber of Commerce, the National Association of Manufacturers, and basically kowtowed to Xi Jinping, repeating the exact same mistakes with Xi and China that his predecessors committed with Vladimir Putin and Russia, making Germany ever more dependent and entangled on access to the Chinese market and imports from China that uh, companies have opened up there. So we've never fi- quite faced a, a competitor that has an economy that can rival ours, Therefore, that can fund a military that can rival ours and that is so deeply entwined in our own economy. That's why I, I've called for some time, I issued a report on this in the last Congress for what I call strategic decoupling. We need to look at the areas where we're most vulnerable to China and, and start to unravel those vulnerabilities. Sometimes it's going to be cutting edge things like China's cornering of the market, what's known as rare earths, rare earth elements. Now, the irony is they're not that rare at all. You probably go dig some up on the National Mall if you wanted to. What is rare is the mining and the manufacturing, the processing of them, which we've outsourced almost entirely to China. But sometimes it's very low-tech, commonplace things like the ingredients you know, for basic pharmaceuticals, things like heparin or acetaminophen, ibuprofen, penicillin. You know, we just don't really make that in America anymore. It can be made in advanced countries. I mean, about a third of what we use here in America is from places like Japan and Austria and Italy. So it can be done in a cost-effective way and preferably be done here, but at least it shouldn't be done in China, our, our main rival. We need to unravel all of these dependencies. You know, if, if you buy your kids plastic toys for Christmas or you get your, your fake Christmas tree from China, that's probably not going to put us at great risk in America. But if you're getting life-saving medicines or medical equipment or the kind of inputs like those rare earth elements that are essential for every modern electronic device, that's a grave exposure that we never had with Soviet Russia. So um, I know we only have a couple minutes left. I wanted to ask you, about immigration, maybe a little more broadly, what are you looking forward to seeing both in the lame duck session and then in the new Congress? Uh, what are you planning on doing? What do you think we're going to be seeing? Well, not looking for what Chuck Schumer and the, all those Democrats were talking about yesterday, which is some kind of mass amnesty. What's going to stop them, though? That's huh. the issue. They won't get 60 votes for that in the Senate. Okay. And I don't think they'd get 60 votes, even if they put something more targeted into any kind of year end spending bill. Um, obviously, in the new Congress, we'll have a Republican majority that I, I hope will be able to block the worst proposals that we were trying to fend off over the last two years when Democrats controlled both chambers. Unfortunately, some Republicans, I think, have um, softer views on immigration than I think our party should have. 
One thing, though, that we haven't really discussed at length today, which is foremost on the minds of most Americans, is the fiasco at our southern border. And I think even though that's a separate issue from legal immigration or non-immigrant visas, the security of our southern border is kind of a threshold issue. And that if the Biden administration doesn't take more steps to get the border under control, uh, it'll be hard to find any kind of consensus immigration approach that can uh, earn my support or probably the support of most Republicans. Do you get the sense from any of your Democratic colleagues that even if, say, especially with the end of Title 42, that they're kind of looking into the abyss there. I mean, this administration has used Title 42 as the only limited immigration control measure that's there, and that's going to turn into a pumpkin in next month. Yeah. Is there no one on the Democratic side who realizes that maybe this is at least a political problem, if not a I think so. Well, one? I think, you know, you saw a few throwaway votes, you know, that were then highlighted in campaign ads by Democratic senators up for election. So they recognize this is a political problem for right. them. Now, they may think that because they had a better than expected election result that, you know, they dodged a bullet and it's not that big an issue. I just I don't think that's the case, especially, you know, if you're a Democrat up in a state like Arizona or New Mexico, who's directly impacted by the fiasco at our southern border. Probably shouldn't think that. But really, I mean, when more than 100,000 Americans are dying each year from drug deaths and, and that increase over the last 10 years is almost entirely, almost entirely attributable to synthetic opioids coming from Mexico. I mean, every state's a border state, whether it's West Virginia, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Montana, just to name a few places where you have Democratic senators up for re-election. So I hope my Democratic colleagues take it more seriously, but I so far have not seen much evidence of that. We only got a minute or two left. I wanted to give you a chance to talk a little bit about your new book. As they say, when you talk about a book, you want to repeat the title <laughs> over and over again. So it's called Only the Strong. Yeah. And what's the uh, so punchline? Only, only the Strong is... The punchline, you'd say, is probably the subtitle, Reversing the Left's Plot to Sabotage American Power, because the sense of decline that so many Americans have today is both genuine and real, but it's also not an accident. It's not bad luck. It didn't just happen because Joe Biden or Barack Obama are president. They want American power to decline. They want America to retrench and pull in its horns and become a more normal nation. This is going back 100 years of the progressive era with Woodrow Wilson, the patron saint of the progressives, who openly rebuked and repudiated the Declaration and the Constitution and the moral foundations of America. Once you do that, it's not a very long uh, step to get to where you were in the 60s and 70s with the Blame America First Democrats, as the great Gene Kirkpatrick called them. Um, I'm not saying that they're un-American. Well, I'm not saying they're necessarily un-American, <laughs> um, although a lot of them are. They're saying that they think that America is more likely to be a source of war and arrogance and oppression in the world than safety and freedom and prosperity. And therefore, they undermine the wellspring and the foundation of American power. That's true of our military. That's true of American energy production. It's true of our immigration system. That's what I was going to ask. Is how, how does the immigration yeah. figure into that? So, I mean, a, a nation without borders is not a nation. I mean, it's the most fundamental thing. Like you look at a map, any five-year-old can look at a map right. and, and see what makes a country a country, at least at the most elemental level. And the Biden administration has basically erased that border that we have with Mexico and look at the consequences of it, from rising crime and drug deaths. And to say nothing of all the issues we've been discussing on how an adversary like China can exploit our legal immigration system. And then in, uh, in the second part of the book, I, I lay on kind of a roadmap to rebuild our power. We've been in dire straits before. You know, look, it only took one election in 1980 to help turn things around. 
even after a disappointing midterm election in 1978. So it's kind of a, a history of how we got to where we are, how the Democratic left has been intentionally and purposely sabotaging American power, and how we can rebuild it. Well, good. Um, I know you have to run. You've got another appointment. I really appreciate it. Senator Tom Cotton, the book is Only the Strong. I assume it's on Amazon. Thank you very much. Thanks for everybody for coming. And uh, we'll uh, look forward to what you're going to be doing in the next Congress, Senator. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. Thanks, CIS. Again, the video of that discussion, if you're interested, is on our website at cis.org, and the link will be in the show notes. But something I wanted to draw a little attention to is a different issue. And this is something that's been in the news over the past week has been a dramatic increase in the number of illegal alien crossings, specifically in El Paso. Obviously, the border is essentially out of control now, and it's getting even more out of control if that's possible. And this is all happening in the lead up to the expected end of what is called Title 42 which is the shorthand term for public health orders that were originally related to COVID that allow, among other things, the Border Patrol to just expel people they catch, no hearing, no asylum, no nothing. And it's the only immigration policy left over from Trump that Biden didn't abandon, although the administration has been using this Title 42 authority less and less. And most recently, only about one out of three people were expelled. The rest were just let in. Well, there are competing Court cases, it's kind of complicated. You can follow it. We've written about it a lot. Art Arthur on our site has written about it in great detail. But the upshot is that a federal judge has ordered Title 42 orders to be ended December 21st. So it's coming up. It might end up getting postponed if a federal appeals court gets involved because the administration has appealed it. But this Title 42 authority that is the only thing basically keeping I wouldn't even say a semblance of order at the border, but preventing the border from basically becoming utterly meaningless is going to end soon. Illegal immigrants or prospective illegal immigrants and their smugglers all know about this. They follow the immigration news more carefully, frankly, than any even those of you listening to this program. And this has led to large groups of people gathering on the Mexican side of the border in anticipation of rushing the border when Title 42 ends. And already some significant numbers of people are coming, hundreds at a time in groups. And we're seeing that in El Paso was most notable, but it's happening elsewhere as well. And the administration doesn't really know what to do because they've created this mess themselves. They inherited a border that was basically stable and broke it. And they don't really think that it's right to turn people away. On the other hand, they see the political problems that the border is creating for them. And so it seems that what they're going to do, and this is informed by reporting that our own Todd Benzman did on a recent trip to the Mexican side of the border, they're going to ramp up a program they're already starting to use where they give parole This is this uh, supposedly limited authority the president has to let in people who don't have a right to come into the country. It's called parole. It's nothing to do with criminal parole. What they're doing is giving people parole before they even cross the border. And then the Mexican authorities are just escorting them across the border and handing them to the immigration service, which then lets them go. What that means is the people get into the United States 
outside the immigration law. I mean, this whole structure that the administration is following is illegal, but they don't show up in the statistics that come out every month of the number of illegal border crossers because they didn't cross the border illegally. The administration sprinkled them with magic fairy dust called parole, and then they crossed the border. And so that seems to be what the administration's plan is, not to try to deter and reduce the number of people coming into the United States who have no right to do so, but to rechristen them legal entrants before they get to the border so that they don't show up in the statistics, but the same number of people get into the United States, again, outside the bounds of immigration law. This is why one of the most important goals of people who are interested in restoring the rule of law to immigration has to be to either eliminate or radically limit the parole power. This is something Congress put into the law in the 50s to give the executive branch a little wiggle room, a little discretion, so that if, for instance, somebody's his appendix bursts, he's at the border, doesn't have time to get a visa, he can be paroled into the hospital, get fixed up and sent back. Or your mother's funeral is tomorrow and you can't get a visa, they let you in for three days and then you leave. There's a purpose for that kind of thing. In fact, I think it was a number of years ago, there was a Russian cosmonaut on the space station who came down on our space shuttle back when there was the space shuttle and was obviously landing in the United States, but he had no visa. So they paroled the guy in. Again, you need to have some kind of limited authority like that. This administration has surpassed the abuse of parole that has happened in the past under other administrations and has made it systematic. Not giving parole on an individual one-by-one basis, they have parole programs. They're giving it on a mass basis to hundreds of thousands of people who have no right to enter the United States. So it is, I would argue, the number one objective of a Congress and some future administration that wants to restore the rule of law to immigration is to either abolish parole or to dramatically restrict the incidences, the circumstances in which the president is allowed to grant this extraordinary authority. Congress tried to do so back in 1996. The House of Representatives passed an immigration enforcement bill that had such limits that spelled out in detail the only three or four reasons you're allowed to parole somebody in. It, for whatever reason, got cut out when the House and Senate were negotiating over a you know, common version of the bill. The bill was passed. president signed it. It was a major step forward in immigration enforcement, but that parole restriction was not included in it. And any new immigration bill needs to have as one of its most important elements restricting the president's authority to just set up basically a parallel immigration system and subvert the restrictions on numbers and characteristics that Congress has placed in the law. That's it for this week's episode of Parsing Immigration Policy. This is Mark Krikorian, and I hope you'll tune in next week. Thank you. Thank you.